the brothers of Joseph have come back to the person who was now the prime minister of Egypt. That's Joseph himself, although they don't know it. And they're dreading the meeting today because the last time when they were down in Egypt looking for bread and finding provender, well, things didn't go exactly terribly well for them. Their brother Simeon then was taken into custody, and he was held there in custody, and he was not going to be able to be given back unless on their next visit they brought the youngest son in the family, that was Benjamin, down into Egypt with them. Then to complicate things even further, on their first stop on the way home last time around, they'd gone to an inn, opened their sacks, and found our money, our full money, the total weight of it is back in the mouth of all of our sacks. And that would have sent not a wave of gladness coursing through their freedom, but one of anxiety and confusion. And now they're coming, and they are terrified about this new meeting with the prime minister in Egypt. So when they arrive at his court, Joseph sees his brothers, and Benjamin is there, and his steward, he directs to take them all round to the house for a meal. Now, they're not incredibly impressed by what they see, because their minds aren't allowing them to saturate their senses with the grandeur of the place. They're terrified. They feel in deep trouble. And when they got a chance, what they did was they, they took the steward aside that Joseph had assigned to them for their welfare that day, and they poured into his ear their story. Here's how it happened. And they tried to explain it from the beginning, told him about the money, and they went back, and they'd opened their sacks, and there was all their money that they had paid for the corn in Egypt. All of that money returned to them, and they're pleading their innocence here. The steward listened, and he replied. In verse 23 comes his reply, Peace be to you. Fear not. The God, the God of your father, hath given you treasure in your sacks. They could only think of what could possibly happen. And what they felt inevitably was going to happen. They'd be chargeable for all of this. Simeon had been taken. Benjamin, he was in the firing line now. Who knows what will happen to the rest of us? But while they're looking into the future with fear, this steward of Joseph tells them, consider the present and consider it with joy. For look at the blessings God is giving to you. And if only they could pause and say, well, what has happened to us since we've come here? Our feet have been washed, our animals have been well fed, and they've been cared for. Our brother Simeon has returned to us. He's among us now. He's looking as fit and well as he did whenever we left him, if not arguably even better now. They were seated according to the rage here as guests of the prime minister. They were being served an incredible feast. Their order for food was fulfilled, and they were about to go on their way. They had never had it so good in the middle of their trials. They were being blessed. 
but they didn't see it. Before we leave the words given by the steward here, it gives me an echo of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said to his own people. Because we live in difficult days and we live in challenging times, such as Joseph's brothers were faced with, we are in the midst of trial. Many of us have heavy trials to bear. Our Lord said, Peace be unto you. In John 20, verse 19 to 29, you will find in that one appearance after his resurrection, he came and three times over in that one appearance, he used these terms, peace be unto you. And when he is present, we can experience peace in the middle of any storm. That's a fact. Not only that, fear not. How many times do we read of his word through his ministry? And he's on the ship, and the disciples are terrified, and they feel we're going to capsize here, be brought to the bottom of Galilee. And he just stands and says, fear not. Peace be still. In Matthew 10, 28, in Luke 8 and 50, in Luke 12 and verse 7, in Luke 12 and verse 32, and those are not all the references by any means, but in all of those, our Lord is telling His people, fear not. And why is that? I imagine it's pretty similar to the situation Joseph's brothers were found in at this time. While they were looking to the future, and they couldn't make head or tail of it. And they were quaking with fear as a result of the unknown what is going to happen. But because Jesus was present in these New Testament times, because he was speaking to them, they could know peace. And they could banish fear. And we can do that today. So what Joseph's brothers were being told here, your God and the God of your father hath given you, look at the word, treasure. He has given you treasure. In verse 23, we have it there. And that got my mind thinking, and it pulled up a question in my thoughts. And the question was this, what treasures could I be enjoying today? When I feel I'm in the middle of trial, what treasures could I be enjoying today that I'm actually overlooking in my life? The Bible tells of many treasures, the blessings of family and enjoyment in our work and contentment and peace and others, and that's only on the natural, mundane scale. But what we're going to look at tonight is four spiritual blessings. And I'm entitling them, you cannot afford to miss what you cannot afford. These are blessings money cannot buy. These are blessings that Christ gives. Your God and the God of your Father hath 
given you treasure. And so, on a topical fashion today, what we're going to take is blessing number one, the treasure of God's supplies. And when I talk about God's supplies, I'm thinking of the word grace in particular. It's one of the most spectacular gifts that God has given to any individual, the grace that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear how Paul describes it, very familiar words in Ephesians 2 and the verse 8 and the verse 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, man, you and I know, because we were there, if we're saved today, we were there before salvation. We have a tendency to view salvation as something that is going to be merited. And every false religion in the world works off this foundation. They know that people have the inner feeling, inner desire to do something for their salvation, to earn that salvation, to merit it in some form or fashion. And so they calibrate and arrange everything around that principle. And let's face it, it's a rather delicious money grabber. It fills the coffers. People are willing to do, do, do whatever it takes. If this can just be an add-on to my life and I can live whatever way I want, at the same time, I'm willing to do and to earn God's favor. So man would like to be nice or considered nice by others at least and good and kind and hope that God is well pleased with the efforts that he's engaged in. And you have got a thousand examples of that on every side of you, people in your family living like that. How do you hope to get to heaven? Well, if I do this and do that, and I think I'm good enough, and I'm not as bad as the other person, it all boils down to this, something we are earning, something we are meriting. But you know what? Even when we do everything, we're well aware of our own feelings. We know there are many sinful things that we do as well. We know there are compromises in our life, hurtful words that we have spoken, blatant sin that we've engaged in, times when we don't care and don't want to hear what God wants. And so we're on a, a treadmill that seems to get steeper and steeper and more challenging on the way up, or a merry-go-round that is faster and faster the more we try to get on it. And so in our days of trial, we're thinking we need to give up here. We have nothing left, nothing left in the tank and in frustration we cry, I can't do it. And that's the truth. None of us can. But Paul is saying here, our salvation is not based upon what we do. It is anchored in God's gift to us. It is by His gift of grace that we are saved, not because of what we do. We are saved by grace through faith, and even that faith is not something that we produce in ourselves crank up in our system, but that very faith is the gift of God to us as well. We can say of this grace that God has given for salvation your God, and the God of your Father hath given you treasure. What a treasure grace is. Chuck Swindoll once told the story of a man in India the man had bought a, brought a number of live quail with him to the market. 
And he kept control of them by putting a string around one leg of each bird. And the string was then tied to a ring that was attached loosely to a peg in the ground. And the man had trained the quail to walk round and round in a circle. Well, the Hindu who saw that was horrified by the treatment of the birds here, and he told the man, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll buy them all. Every single last one of those quail, I will buy them all. And the merchant was ecstatic, brilliant. But the buyer says, I'll buy in one condition, the birds have to be set free. The man thought it was odd for this guy to come and pay so handsomely for the birds, but had the desire that he was going to set them free at the end of his payment, but uh, they were his birds when he would give over the money and he could do with them whatever he wanted. So he cut the string off the birds. Guess what happened? They continued to walk in circles. The man finally had to shoo them away, and they flew only a short distance along, and they began walking again in the familiar pattern, going round and round in circles. And I thought, that's what happens to many people. They come along to a gospel service like this. They hear the message of salvation. They understand what we are saying about the means of salvation, that our salvation does not depend on any of our supposedly good works. It depends only on Christ's once and forever good work that He did on the cross of Calvary, standing there as our substitute. They leave the place, and they start going round and round in circles doing their good works all over again, hoping against hope that those charitable gifts and those benevolent deeds will be enough to get them into heaven. Isn't that how it is? That's why Spurgeon addressed his fledgling preachers in the pastor's college. And he told them, when you get out there and you're preaching to congregations, make sure nine out of every ten arrows in your gospel quiver are pointed and directed against good works, because it's what people are dependent on for eternity. And it's no different today. But God's grace is His unmerited favor. None of us could be saved if grace were not undeserved favor. And if it were not a quality that's grace in the mind of God, in the heart of God, in the nature of God, then all of us would be shipwrecked by sin and damned in hell. There'd be no escape. But as we sang tonight, grace first contrived a way to see of rebellious man And then when you and I become a Christian or children of God, we are accepting this fact that I am depending and relying entirely upon what Christ has done for my salvation. I'm not depending not even 1% on anything that I have done. What do we find when we begin to live the Christian life? We need more grace, a different kind of grace, a grace that will take us through our trials and our heartaches, 
And I thank God for the Word of God when we read there, and we have many occurrences of the term grace in our New Testament Scriptures, and two-thirds of those have flowed from the pen of one author, that is Paul. No wonder they call him the Apostle of Grace. So what happens then when trials come and they come in waves into the life of a Christian? What does he or she do? We plead for grace. Don't we sing sometimes, He giveth more grace when the trials get greater? Hasn't our Lord assured us, My grace is sufficient for thee? And that changes our capacities, that grace that He gives us for our work and our suffering and our obedience. And we can read all about it in 2 Corinthians 9 and 8, and in 12 and 9, and 1 Corinthians 15 and 10. You can check out those references, but what it tells me is this when life gets tough and the way gets rough and rugged, I shouldn't resort to the old methodology by trying to work harder, by work frantically hoping I can solve the problem and I by my strength can lift the burden, He has told me, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you, because if I keep the burden, I'm walking round and round in circles again, and I'm getting nowhere. Strength for my journey comes when I trust Him for everything rather than in mine own efforts for anything. When I realize God is not out to get me or to make things hard for me, He wants to love me. And my salvation, it's not gained by mine own efforts. And my ability to bring grace and peace and be an influence unto others doesn't come purely from my efforts either. It's His grace, and that grace is sufficient for everything I need. Your God, and the God of your Father hath given you treasure. And when we open the sack, one of those treasures right at the top is God's grace, the treasure of God's supplies. But then in the second instant, we have the treasure of God's Scriptures the treasure of His Word. You'll know without me telling you the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. You almost have a snaking feeling of dread going down your spine whenever any preacher says, we're going to turn to Psalm 119 because, you know, the reading alone is going to be pretty long, 176 verses if he reads it all start to finish. But what it does in every single verse, it exalts the precious nature of God's law, the Bible. Let me give you some examples of what David is doing here. Verse 72, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. In verse 92 and 93, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. In verse 97 and verse 98, he says, this is his testimony, O high love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, have made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. The whole psalm reads like this. David is saying again and again and again that he loves the Lord's law. And remember, he only had a small portion of the Bible. He loved God's law. Why? Because it helped him to know God. 
Can you imagine just for a moment how excited David would have been if he had had the whole of the New Testament Scriptures, which we have in our hands today, if he had access to that? Telling us of Christ, confirming all that you know and have heard, David, about the Old Testament prophecies, some made by yourself, by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. All of these have been fulfilled in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here's His life. Here's His ministry. Here's His death. Here's His resurrection. Here's His ascension. Here's the promise of His coming again. Read about it from Matthew to Revelation. David couldn't do that, but we can. When was the last time you picked up your Bible and you viewed it even as you handled it as a treasured possession. Not because it looks good, it's leather-bound or gilt-edged or was expensive or even given to you as a gift by somebody you love and someone who loves you. I mean, when was the last time when you looked at the Bible and you said, this is a treasure because it contains the living words of the living God to my soul? That you said, just in the terminology we have in our text tonight, your God and the God of your Father hath given you treasure. Treasure. The Bible is a treasure. Because in the words of 2 Timothy 3 and 16 and 17, we read all Scripture is given by accident? No way. Inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for the proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The demand of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we need to get that. Because in this topsy-turvy world, we must value the Bible as a treasure. Why? Because it's from God, who's an authoritative source, it teaches us the right way to live. It equips us with information that helps us serve God productively. It gives us promises that will get us through tough times. It gives us assurances about the future that will give us something to anchor our hope to gives us certain testimony of life after death for those who were saved in the charts, the whole way of salvation for us so clearly. It gives us ammunition to fight the temptations of the devil. It tells us how to find forgiveness and a new beginning. I read of a man who went to a hotel, and he fully intended, this is my final night. He was going to commit suicide. But in the morning, he came running out of his room with a Gideon Bible in one hand and a gun that he had intended the previous night to use on himself, that gun in the other hand, and he ran down to the front desk, and you can imagine, he's terrifying everybody who meets him, and he says, I have to have this book. He lifted that Gideon's Bible out of his hotel room. And the hotel manager did what you and I would have done in the circumstances. He says, well, given the fact you have a gun pointed in my face, you can have anything you want. The man went on to explain how he came with that determination, I'm going to end my life tonight. But when he began to read the book that he found in his drawer, he couldn't put it down. 
read about Christ, what He'd done for sinners like Him, and as He read and understood, new life was born within Him, and He had to have a book that told such an incredible story. We sing a chorus in the children's meeting, what a wonderful treasure, gift of God without measure. We will travel together, my Bible and I, your God and God of your fathers hath given you treasure. Paul was under no illusion about the value of the Bible. And so in Colossians chapter 3 and 16, he tells us, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And that word dwell means let it feel at home inside of you. Have such a relationship with God's Word that it finds a home in your heart. And the Bible, of course, should be at the heart of our existence direction we draw from it, comfort we find in it, helps us to know the truth, helps us to recognize error, provides answers to difficult questions. So how do we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom? We need to know the message thoroughly. Christian, by definition, is a person who will get to know God's Word because that's what his diet will be. That's what his appetite, that's what his longings are going to lead him. He'll want to read it daily. Some Christians are struggling with that. Let me throw some facts your way. Did you know that half of the books of the Bible can be read in less than 45 minutes each, some of them in less than 20 minutes? Did you know it's been demonstrated that the entire Old and New Testaments, the entire Bible, can be read aloud in less than? Somebody's going to think six months. Somebody's going to think three. Somebody else is going to say, well, it could be a month. If you were to read the Bible aloud, It can be read aloud in less than 71 hours. Do you realize that means? That in less than 15 minutes a day, you could read the Bible cover to cover in one year. With that in mind, what's the excuse for a woeful lack of knowledge of what the Bible says? We must know the message thoroughly. We must as well understand the message carefully. Hearing and understanding are two different things. I mean, how many people in the home setting have been accused of, you aren't listening to me? Oh, they're hearing every word, but they don't want to calibrate it and get the message from the words. They don't want to get it because they're not hearing correctly here. And that's what we need to do in our relationship with the Word of God. Hear and read and understand. Interact with it. Don't give up until we know what the Bible is saying. Apply the message practically. I've met a lot of people over the years and they've said, you know, there's a lot of hard things in the Bible and difficult to understand. And it's as much as You've just set me a task where I've walked out there full of zeal and I've dropped into a swamp and there's nobody to help me. I don't understand a word is the impression they're giving. And that, of course, is nonsense. 
Mark Twain said, yeah, Mark Twain, most people are bothered about those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. Do you know where he's going? I'm sure you do. But as for me, Twain said, I have always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those which I understand. Keep reading. There's plenty you'll understand. And if you act on all you understand, you'll not be going to the right hand or to the left hand. The Bible doesn't teach about forgiveness so that you and I can sit around in a discussion and debate forgiveness. It teaches forgiveness so that we will forgive. It doesn't teach us about peace so that you and I can sit down at our table and pen a lovely poem that would nearly make you feel relaxed as you read it. It's so that we might know in ourselves a real calm in the middle of the troubled times of life. Here's the question. Since the Bible is so magnificent, why are so many Bibles dusty? Why do we have them as mantelpieces or shelf fillers rather than a book whose contents we are devouring? We have forgotten what a rich treasure the Bible is. Your God and the God of your fathers hath given you treasure, the treasure of God's grace, His supplies. The treasure of His book, the Scriptures. The treasure of God's Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, the verse 4 and 5, the beginning of the New Testament church, we read there that they being assembled together with them commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. A gift of God. We take it for granted because we don't seem to appreciate the Holy Spirit lives within the heart of those who trust Christ for salvation. He takes possession. He wants a clean house. The Bible tells us several things about the Holy Spirit. John 16, our Savior's words, is a very good starting point, a pivotal passage. In fact, nevertheless, he said, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, and that's him dying and rising again from the dead as per the, all the prophecies for our atoning, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will approve the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. What does the Spirit of God do? He brings us to faith. Almighty grace rests that man, and he does it by the power of his Spirit. John 6 and 44, he makes us realize we do need a Savior. He shows us the only Savior is Jesus Christ. He comforts us. He encourages us. He guides us into all truth. He gives us direction in our lives. And also, 
When I don't know how to pray as I should and I'm struggling in prayer, He prompts us in prayer and gives us assistance there. Romans 8 and 26, He gives us assurance. Many people struggle here that we are the children of God by faith in Christ. Romans 8 and 16, He equips us to serve God. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, and He keeps us secure in our salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But oftentimes we take them for granted, and we don't give thanks or praise to God the Holy Spirit in all the blessings that He brings to us. Here's a gift. I can put a value upon it. Your God and the God of your Father have given you treasure, the treasure of God's grace, His supplies, the treasure of His book, the Holy Scriptures, the treasure of His Spirit. And finally, the treasure of God's service, His work. I'm talking here about meaningful service in God's kingdom. It's promoted in Romans 12. This is your reasonable service. In 1 Corinthians 12 through to chapter 14, in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter chapter 4, many other parts of the book are all saying, God has given to every single believer a certain gift or ability that will furnish them and enable them to minister for Him in this world. He has gifted us. He has given us treasure that we should use to His glory. He gives us the wonderful privilege of being a servant in His kingdom. Your God and the God of your Father hath given you treasure. Let's face a fact right here. God does not need me, and He doesn't need you. He could do all He needs to have done on His own, but He has chosen to allow us to share the joy of serving Him. It's a deep privilege to share the message of salvation with others. It's an indescribable thing to be used by God to touch someone else's life. It's an awesome privilege to be allowed into the service of the King and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. But we must always remember what Paul learned and is teaching us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's all we are. That the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. Did you notice something in the passage we read in Genesis chapter 43? Do you remember who it was that told the brothers to Recognize the treasures God has given you. It was Joseph Stuart. That Stuart was not a Hebrew. He'd not been raised under the God of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Where did he get the insight that he got? I imagine he got it from Joseph. I'm sure Joseph impacted many lives there in Egypt, shared his faith with everyone he came in contact with, told the story of God's grace in his life, and the steward, even if he hadn't heard the verbal story, he watched Joseph, how he lived his life, and he saw a quality there that drew him to Joseph's God. 
The same attitude and trust, that constant dwelling upon the treasures that God has given to us, that helped Joseph during the days of his trial, they showed up in other areas of his life as well. God has given you and I the same opportunity. We're granted the privilege, the joy of being part of extending his kingdom here on the earth. I close with a rather intriguing story. Norman Wright told it, the story of a woman, and her day began, well, just rotten. She overslept, was late for work, you know, the panic that engenders. And everything that happened that day when she got to the office just built up the frenzy to its zenith. By the time she got to the bus stop for her journey home, her stomach was one big nut. As usual, the bus was late, and it was jammed. She had to stand in the aisle. And as that lurching vehicle pulled her in every direction, and she's holding on, her despair just deepened. Then she heard a deep voice from up the front of the bus, and that deep voice was booming out these words, Beautiful day, isn't it? Now, because of the crowd on the bus, she couldn't see the man. But she could hear him. And he continued and he commented on the spring scenery. And every approaching landmark, he described it. This church, that park, this cemetery, that fire station, and soon all the passengers, they're gazing out the windows, and the man's enthusiasm was so contagious. She found herself smiling for the first time that entire day. She reached her stop, and she's making her way through the bus to the door. And for the first time that day, she gets a look at her guide on the bus. A plump figure with a black beard, wearing dark glasses, carrying a thin white cane. Incredible. He was blind. The woman stepped off the bus, and suddenly all of her built-up tensions drained away. God, in his wisdom, had sent a blind man to help her see. To see that though there are times when things go wrong, when everything seems dark and dismal and dreary, it is still a beautiful world. Humming a tune, she raced up the steps to her apartment. She couldn't wait to get in through the door there, greet her husband, and say to him, Beautiful day, isn't it? Let me ask you a simple question. If people drew their attitude from yours, siphoned off what you are showing, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Let me go a step further. If people drew their conclusions about the Savior from watching your life, would it draw them closer to Him or push them further away? God has given us the opportunity to tell others of His treasures. Joseph Stewart took the opportunity, and we need to take it as well. Your God and the God of your Father hath 
given you treasure. And those treasures, he's saying to the brothers, they're undeserved. They're unexpected. We know that. We don't deserve. We can never demand anything that God has given, but he brings salvation to us. Have you received it? You know the story of redeeming love. He has sent his own son, the treasure of heaven, his well beloved, his only begotten. And he has gone to the cross to give his life in exchange for yours. Our sin isn't ignored. He paid for it in full by his blood. And he's promised, call upon me for mercy and you'll receive the gift of eternal life that he extends and he will make us new people. We need to take him at his word. Maybe we feel under pressure in life. Well, is our situation really any different from these brothers of Joseph? Is our back any more against the wall than theirs was? Have you read the book? You'll know that God specializes, if you have, in taking lives that are shattered and in shambles and in turning them into something incredible, and He's willing to do it for you. Dear Nahum, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-feeling treasury filled with boundless stores of grace.